Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Today we find out how social media is being weaponized to help Russia spread and amplify its justification for the illegal invasion of Ukraine. Who's behind it? What stories are they spreading? And why are Canadians being targeted? We get a first-hand account of the situation on the ground in Ukraine from senior global correspondent Jeff Semple, who's just returned from a reporting trip there. We find out why food banks across Canada are sounding the alarm about high food costs and the sheer number of Canadian families now turning to them for help and the number of them having to do without just to try to make ends meet. But first, what hope is there for inflation to come down in the near term? And what kind of impact is it continuing to have on the Canadian economy and what Canadian consumers are facing every day? So as we know, inflation is stressing out a lot of Canadians, especially when they buy groceries, certainly when they fill up their vehicles with gas. The FP Canada Financial Stress Index survey says money was the biggest stressor for 38% of respondents, more than two-thirds of you said that rising grocery prices are having a direct impact on their finance-related stress, and one-third say financial stress is leading to anxiety, depression, or mental health challenges. It is a big issue. So what lies ahead? Will it get any better? Will inflation continue to rise? Well, the outlook for our economy and others around the world is mixed at best, and inflation continues to be a huge problem. We heard it from Britain today. We heard it from Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary in the U.S. yesterday. The president of the World Bank says it will be hard for many countries to avoid recession. It's downgraded its outlook for the global economy to 2.9% from 4.1% as it had forecast just back in January. So what lies ahead for us? Joining me now is Pedro Antunes. He's the chief economist at the Conference Board of Canada. Thank you for your time tonight. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. I guess the, uh, you know, uh, maybe, uh, is there any good news out there about the economy? Because it all seems to be uh, relatively bleak these days. Well, uh, I think uh, a lot of the bleakness is coming from the fact that really uh, we have not seen inflation like this in in 30 years. And uh, we're starting to get a handle on uh, both in terms of households and businesses. And and of course, uh, your forecasters like myself on really the devastating impacts that inflation is having and eating away at our capacity to to grow the economy and grow demand. So yeah, it's not a great news story. I I would say that certainly uh, to counter that a little bit, you know, we've had massive support through this pandemic. And, uh, you know, when we look at certainly households and businesses in Canada, they are in pretty good financial health. So hopefully we can weather the storm and, uh, and, and see some of those inflationary pressures come off. We saw a World Bank report yesterday that, that once again uh, showed that this is not a Canadian problem. This is a global issue. Uh, what's the World Bank seeing for, for the global economy right now? It was, it was shifting its forecast downwards. Well, definitely. I I think, uh, you know, early on, of course, we were looking for two solid years of recovery, again, coming off of that devastating impact that the pandemic had in 2020. Uh, So a rebound year. 2021 and still a lot of sectors in the economy uh, far from normal and and so further rebounding in 2022. But again, inflation is cutting those uh, forecasts and inflation started even before the war in Ukraine. We were seeing inflationary numbers and pressures ramp up through the second half of 2021. Of course, along comes this crazy war and, uh, you know, we just add even more uh, layer to that inflation. And that's essentially what we're all grappling with right now. Uh, the World Bank is telling us, yes, that uh, the global economy, instead of having a strong recovery year in the range of, you know, perhaps 4% this year, uh, they're downgrading that quite drastically for 2022. And the outlook now for 2023 is also rather weak, you know, with that global growth kind of in that 3% range, which is disappointing. And if I might add, I think uh, where the World Bank really has a good perspective is on the impact of, you know, essentially this inflation, this commodity price shock, and especially the impact of high food prices on developing economies, which they're telling us is going to be devastating. Yeah, we're certainly seeing the impacts of, of these rising prices hitting those who can least afford it, uh, if you could pardon that expression. Uh, in terms of Canada, it's not exactly the same outlook, but we're seeing more people such as yourself weighing in with a lot of caution about where the Canadian economy might go in the next uh, 18 months as well. Yeah, I think uh, for for Canada, we need to 
understand, I guess, that first of all, we do not do a lot of trade directly, neither Canada nor the US uh, with Russia or Ukraine. Uh, so the implication here is really this price shock and how it's affecting our economies. Um, and so for Europe, for our trade partners, if you'd like, uh, for the US as well, uh, there's this inflationary impact that is eroding consumer spending and that recovery in, in consumer spending that we were uh, looking for, be it on, you know, on material goods or be it on services and travel and tourism, these these kinds of things. So that rebound is getting eroded. It's not as going to be as strong as what we had hoped for prior to this war. Uh, I think the other impact uh, that we need to consider for Canada, of course, is offsetting of that. And that is that when we look at the the uh, suite of products that Ukraine and Russia sell onto the world, they're very similar to what Canadian exporters and resource sector producers also export. So when we think about, you know, essentially grains, uh, oil seeds, um, and energy, uh, or, or add on to that uh, mineral resources, you know, all, these are all things that are seeing very strong price increases, and that benefits Canadian profits, exporters' profits and, and margins. So there's a slight offset there for Canada where we think the net impact really is kind of neutral. Um, Canada, not, not it's not going to post a huge rebound this year, but uh, the impact overall is, is relatively neutral for, for our economy. What about those sectors of the economy that you've already mentioned, such as travel and tourism, the hospitality sector and so forth? Uh, are there still a lot of challenges for them because of what we're seeing? Well, definitely. Well, I think there's uh, two full challenges. Uh, one, of course, on anything to do with uh, travel. Um, you know, again, that recovery that we were looking so forward to that's been a long time coming is going to be muted by the effects of very high gasoline prices. And, you know, gasoline prices have gone a further echelon up from oil prices because it's not just the demand for or the price of oil that's come up it's also the refinery the refining capacity that's essentially lack of investment over the last two years because of such weak demand that's caused another bottleneck there and so gasoline prices over and above uh the increases in in oil prices and and that's going to have an impact on that segment Uh, i think the other challenge is on uh, the labor side really we've seen across the board uh both in the us and in canada uh, you know, the capacity issue is driven by essentially the economy's rebounded, employment's rebounded, uh, employment in these sectors has lagged, and now they're having a lot of trouble getting people back into the into the workforce in those segments. Very, very tight labor market. So in some respects, we're really capacity constrained uh, and unable to meet the demand that we're seeing uh, that, it, that is coming. It certainly it strikes me as being, a, a, you know, not a typical sort of uh, economic situation that we're used to, at least haven't seen in a long time. For for average Canadians, whether they be shopping or or working, uh, what kind of impact is this having? Because it feels like we're, you know, we're getting less for what we can spend. Uh, the job market's still great if you're looking for something better paid. Uh, but realistically, a lot of Canadians find themselves in a pretty tough situation right now with these prices up so high. Yeah, I think it's... Uh... You know, again, we've seen a a lot of support through the pandemic. And so we've actually seen our aggregate savings really do phenomenally well. We socked away uh, more in the last two years than we had in the 12 years prior. If you remember, our savings rates were really weak and we were concerned about how much debt households had taken on. Now, that doesn't mean that we didn't take on more debt uh, through this uh, crisis, especially real estate debt. We really took on a lot of mortgage debt through this. Uh, So the point here is that, yes, we'd socked away a lot, uh, but it's not all households that were able to sock away so much. It's typically people who are in higher income groups that weren't able to spend on travel and tourism. And so some segments of the economy of, of households, uh, you know, I think are really have the capacity and the wherewithal to continue spending. Uh, and we're seeing that happening both in Canada and the U.S. But of course, uh, you know, there are lower income households that, you know, the support programs were there, but now they're facing uh, the, you know, essentially the reality of those support programs coming to an end. On top of that, 
uh, food prices affecting lower income households more so than others because they spend a greater portion of their income on those basics. Uh, so obviously food prices really eroding away at, uh, you know, at, at purchasing power more so for, for lower income households. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I think, um, you know, the final situation is for all Canadians, we're going to see the pressures of higher interest rates really. I mean, you know, monetary policy and, you know, increasing interest rates to bring inflation back into uh, into check, that is just adding to, uh, you know, another hit to households in general. And, and obviously that will have an impact as well. Speaking with Pedro Antunes, he's the chief economist at the Conference Board of Canada. We're talking about some uh, gloomy economic outlook uh, outlooks re- uh, released recently by the World Bank, both for the global economy uh, and some economists here as well, uh, looking ahead to the Canadian economy with a bit of trepidation. After this, we'll continue talking about interest rates because it's an interesting uh, balance that the Bank of Canada is trying to achieve here between trying to drive down inflation at the same time as trying not to drive the Canadian economy into a recession. And we'll get to that after this. I'm speaking with Pedro Antunes. He's the chief economist at the Conference Board of Canada. We're talking about uh, the economic outlook, both globally and for Canada, uh, specifically just the impact of high prices on most Canadians, the impact on the economic recovery of inflation that we haven't seen in decades. Um, Pedro, when you look at the, what the Bank of Canada is trying to do here, uh, certainly for Canadians who rely a lot, you know, who have household debt and so on, uh, the idea of interest rates being driven up is, is difficult. But if it works and drives prices back down, it might be accepted, but it's a delicate balance they're trying to achieve here. Well, uh, absolutely. I I think, um, you know, for for one, the bank is, uh, you know, only able to affect so much of this increase in inflation that we're feeling domestically. Um, You know, part of it, of course, is uh, what happened with global supply chains that we heard about early in 2020, or sorry, mid 2021 and on. Uh, and we're still hearing about in many respects. Uh, China's had some troubles with COVID recently. And so there's further concern around uh, supply chains being hampered there. Uh, add on to that a global commodity price increase, uh, especially uh, the, the increase in energy prices that will affect uh, our own prices here at home. Uh, and then finally, uh, you know, we've seen domestic demand really quite strong. So the Canadian economy and demand for certain goods is very strong. Uh, and we're unable to, in some respects, to meet those demands because of a tight labor market and, you know, these uh, supply chain issues that we're hearing about uh, coming to us from, from essentially everywhere. So all of these challenges ramping up inflationary pressures, you know, we're seeing inflation in the six, 7% range in Canada, something we hadn't seen uh, for 30 years. Now, the challenge for the bank is going to be around inflation expectations. Yes, you know, we certainly at the conference board feel that we're going to see uh, inflation peak and then hopefully come back down. The concern is that if expectations are kind of set higher, then, you know, we're going to see wage, essentially, workers demand higher wages, and they're certainly in a good position to demand those uh, in terms of very tight labor markets, uh, you know, and and a lot of pressure on uh, employers. Um, And if that's the case, you know, it's fine to see higher wages for employees. But if the employee wages come up without productivity gains, then that just leads companies to high, uh, to raise prices. And we get into that vicious cycle of, you know, essentially higher inflation settling into the economy uh, like we had in the late 1980s. That's what the bank is really grappling with and trying to avoid. And we really don't know if they're going to be successful at taming those inflation expectations. Certainly the World Bank used the term stagflation. Again, that's something we haven't heard in many, many, many years. Uh, is there a sense here, uh, Petro, that, that the old tools to try to drive down inflation, such as raising interest rates, uh, that maybe we need a new toolkit in, in, here because we're just facing a very different uh, set of circumstances than we have in the past? Well, again, this, uh, you know, it is global. So the toolkit that the Bank of Canada or essentially the government of Canada have are kind of limited in dealing with some of the pressures that we're talking about. But certainly, you know, you could critique a little bit that uh, the Bank of Canada is telling us that 
the economy is pretty much at capacity. Is certainly in some sectors we know that we're uh, beyond capacity, um, and uh, that the neutral rate, that an, an interest rate that would not increase or decrease uh, the stimulus on the economy, the neutral rate as they define is somewhere between two and three percent. Well, we're still a fair ways from that neutral rate, so perhaps mon- monetary policy has lagged in terms of you know kind of being uh, at the forefront of where we should be. Uh, given the state of the economy, you could critique as well uh, the federal government, where you know we're still running a, a, a you know a deficit that's two percent of GDP or so in a situation, and that's that's in the year coming in a situation where we are essentially at full employment. The unemployment rate has never been uh, tighter in this country since uh, you know th- for over 30, 30 or so years. Uh, in fact, since nineteen seventy six, if I could correct myself on that. Um, and you know, you talk about other. T- tools. Well, I think, you know, the bank, it really is limited in the set of tools that it has. It can affect short-term rates. It's a very broad policy lever. It can affect short-term rates that it lends to the uh, to the chartered banks, and they in turn pass that on to uh, households and businesses. And through quantitative e- easing, it can have an impact or quantitative tightening, I should say as well, can have an impact on longer-term yields. But essentially, Interest rates is really all the bank can uh, can muster. Uh, now it's been, I would say, very creative in the in the last number of years since the financial crisis of two thousand seven two thousand eight. Uh, we've been very creative with our use of quantitative easing in the economy. I think we're learning a lot, uh, but the tools are are what they are. They are limited in certain respect. Pedro Antunes, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for for calling on. Well, we've talked about this quite a bit over the past few months. We know that wars these days, conflicts in general, are also fought not on not just on the battlefield, but in cyberspace. Controlling the narrative, selling your story, peddling your story is an important part of any battle plan. So it's no surprise that Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine, has prompted an effort to sell the Kremlin's version of events. Uh, this may sound familiar. It's NATO's fault. The West is using Ukraine to isolate and punish Russia. Putin had no choice. Ukraine is a fascist state. All of it almost entirely untrue, or at least very to the very least, it blatantly avoids ever mentioning the Ukrainians and all of this and what they want, their own ability to choose their destiny as a nation, as a people. Uh, and the illegal invasion of their country and slaughter of their people, of course. So now Ukraine is fighting this info war as well and doing quite successfully at it. But you may be interested to, to know just how pervasive Russia's justification for this war is being amplified on social media, uh, along with attacks on both you know, the messenger, the institutions, the media, for instance, and uh, the liberal government here in Canada. In other words, sowing further distrust in Canada's institutions and political leadership. And keep in mind, the target here is you. And the aim is to weaken support for Ukraine and countries supporting it against Russia. So who's behind it? How does it work? And how effective has it been? Joining me now with more is Jean-Christophe Boucher. He's an assistant professor of public policy at the University of Calgary. His current work focuses on applied machine learning to understand how the digital world shapes our society. He's also the lead author of a report into this very issue that was released today. Jean-Christophe, thank you so much for your time tonight. It's a pleasure. Uh, This is perhaps not surprising, but you went through many tweets, more than 6 million I read, and you found a pretty concerted effort here to misinform the Canadian public, or at least to amplify that pro-Russian narrative I was talking about. What exactly did you find? What's being done? So the, the purpose of the study was to, you know, measure effectively, uh, essentially, you know, if there was foreign interference or foreign influence uh, during the, the the Ukrainian war and also where it came from. So we wanted to measure this. We we have all these anecdotal evidence that, you know, we think Russian has like a state apparatus that 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 shapes narratives, that produces propaganda. We wanted to see if it it is in Canada. And to what extent? So what we've done is back in November 2021, we're working with partners in the government Canada and NATO and East European countries. And a lot of them at that time said, like, it would be a good time to kind of start to collect data on, on Ukraine and Russia and see whether or not there's like uh, information campaigns that are designed uh, from the Kremlin. And that's what we've done. We, we essentially designed a scraping tool to, to, to scrape the Twitter API 
and uh, and that gave us access to tweets on on Russia. And we started this in November. And right now, as we speak right now, there's still, you know, my data set and my computer is collecting those by the second. And what we found is essentially, as we've collected all this digital trace data, we, we isolated Canadians' accounts. And we tried to kind of understand how Canadian accounts engage with international accounts and with each other on Russia. What we found is this. On one hand, you know, like there's, about 25% of accounts in Canada are focusing uh, or promoting pro-Russian propaganda. So the good news is 75% of us are into the pro-Ukrainian or at least uh, like a different kind of um, group. What we found also, and that's the surprise part, we, we thought, we expected that a lot of this propaganda would come out of Russia, would come out of sock puppets in Europe or in Latin America. Uh, and some of it is true. But what we found is that a, a strong part, a big part of of the influence vectors, where the misinformation comes from, was, in fact, the United States. What we found, actually, is that a lot of Canadians are retweeting American influencers that are promoting pro-Russian propaganda. And that kind of is, is done and retweeted in Canada and then kind of gets into the, our Twitter sphere. So if you think in foreign interference, there's like two vectors of approach. There's the Russian-Chinese one, and that's the normal one that we would expect. The second part is a lot of this misinformation comes from the U.S., actually. We're getting infected through our certain border, uh, southern partner. Yeah, I mean, in fact, I, I found that when I was reading your report, I found it fascinating that 56% were actually U.S.-influenced profiles, 44% uh, were the others. So, in fact, uh, a majority of them were coming from these U.S.-based uh, uh, sources, at least. Exactly. So, so when we talk to our partners in government, when we talk about, like, foreign interference in Canada, when we talk about, like, what kind of foreign actors are trying to shape the narratives or influencing our conversations in Canada, uh, we now find more and more that, in fact, Canadians or the Canadian, let's say, society is more threatened by American accounts and American influence than actually other actors, uh, which speaks to kind of the policies we have to design, the kinds of ways we have to address this. It's easy to kind of criticize the Russians and the Chinese of trying to sow misinformation in Canada, and we feel good about this. And we're kind of shy at, at also noticing and blaming and shaming Americans are actually doing the same thing. And I think in Canada, we have to have a conversation of, of how much we want of American rhetoric to kind of sip in Canada. Jacques-Christophe, how did you establish, just in terms of the messaging, uh, was there a real consistency that you were seeing there that allowed you to say that this was, in fact, uh, messages that were being purposely amplified or at least being spread in a certain way that led you to understand that this was not just individuals expressing individual opinions that they had come up with by themselves? Right. So the way we kind of designed this is is we create these social network maps. So essentially trying to understand how Twitter accounts engage with each other. So instead of trying to look at what they're saying, we're trying to look at how they engage essentially with each other, like going through their behaviors instead of what they say. And what we find is that, you know, some accounts have a tendency to interact with each other more, and that's how we kind of identify pro-Russian or anti-Russian narratives. What we find is that there's a group of influencers, you know, in the U.S., abroad, and in Canada that derives much of this you know, influence. Um, and and those influencers are mostly creating content and they're real people. What we find, for example, is that on the like American side, uh, people like Tulsi Gabbard or Candace Owens on the right of the spectrum have a massive influence and they're creating their own content and they're and those this content is promoted in Canada and amplified in Canada. Um, so it's always, we, we have a way essentially to kind of identify who creates content, and then we have a way to identify who amplifies content. And usually Twitter accounts are different. Some people actually don't retweet other people, they just create content for everything. So we have a really good sense of where the narratives come from, when it comes from, because we have a timestamp on Twitter accounts, and then we see how it goes from the United States, for example, and then it, 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 it piggybacks in Canada through, let's say, Maxime Bernier, who's going to retweet this, and then it kind of sifts into the broader Twitter sphere in Canada. 
I mean, when one talks about sort of uh, information war, it always suggests that it's very well coordinated. Uh, but yeah. one gets the sense here too, and I think just reading through the different narratives that you mentioned, uh, and I want to ask, and I will ask you about that, uh, because there are a different number, a number of different messages that you saw repeated again and again and again. Uh, but but how coordinated is this? Because for instance, there must be a bit of a difference between what the Russian embassy in Ottawa is tweeting somewhat. Uh, and what we're seeing from some of these influencers in the U.S., although perhaps some of the the base of the narrative is the same. Yeah. So so um, so like so there was like two questions that you're asked. Like so in terms of coordination, we know that you know Russian state apparatus are are designing you know basic arguments and basic narratives and discourses to promote their 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 side of the story, right? And we know, for example, coming out of Russia. Some of the things we see in Canada are actually what we're seeing in, like coming out from, from Russia itself, but also how they justify it in France and the U.S. and U.K. So they're not just targeting Canada with all of these allegations. They're really trying to kind of promote the same kind of structure and, and, and arguments. What's interesting on, like, so how is it coordinated? And, and it's a difficult question. So, so the assumption here is that influencers in the U.S., for example, there's like really three arguments on the one hand there's like useful idiots there's people that are you know misguided that think that they know more than everybody else and just basically retake uncritically russia's propaganda and 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 shape it as their own kind of views on the issue there's also people who are co-opted so we know for example that russia pays people that and and in the like in France or in the UK or Latin America to promote their own narrative. So not only does it come out of the Kremlin and Moscow, it comes in St. Petersburg, to be honest, but it comes out also from all of these, you know, dormant uh, accounts all across the world that will shape and coordinate their, their, their arguments and they're co-opted. And, and then there's like the third group of people who benefit financially from promoting these views because it gets them click and speaking engagement. And this is how I would frame some of the influencers we see in the U.S. People like Candace Owens or Tucker Carlson are not necessarily bought off by the Russians, nor do they actually uncritically think about this, but it gets them millions of dollars in speaking engagement and they benefit financially from proposing a contrarian view. And and in some ways, they benefit from it. So, so when we think of coordination, we actually see that there's a there's a bunch of actors and influencers that have different kinds of incentive, and that's what makes them efficient at promoting pro-Russian propaganda. I'm speaking with Jean-Christophe Boucher. He's an assistant professor of public policy at the University of Calgary and an author of a, along with others, of a report released today, just looking at uh, how much disinformation has been spread, uh, really trying to uh, amplify and sell the Kremlin's version of the war in Ukraine. When we come back, we'll talk a bit more about what exactly that version is, who's being targeted, and what you should be on the lookout for. That's next. I'm speaking with Jean-Christophe Boucher about some really fascinating research that he's done. He's an assistant professor of public policy at the University of Calgary. Uh, looked into 6.2 million tweets globally since January of this year to monitor and measure Russian influence operations on social media, specifically ones targeting us in Canada. Um, the narratives were pretty straightforward. I, I, mem- I mentioned them off the top, but pretty much this was trying to reshape who was to blame for this, for this war, uh, more or less. Yeah, I mean, th- that's what we found. So essentially, what, like, we're not going to read 6 million tweets. That's impossible. No. <laughs> so what we've done is we've designed, we, we use we, like applied machine learning. So essentially, you know, sort of artificial intelligence to read these tweets and, and cluster and, and, and classify them for us. And, and essentially, the computer gives us a bunch of, of, of trends or patterns and say, like, I see these patterns in the text. And now the researchers have to figure out what the computer found. Um, and, and what we find essentially is that there's like broadly five types of arguments systematically pushed by the Russian propaganda. The first one is what we've seen from the beginning, the assumption that the argument that 
Russia's invasion of Ukraine is the result of, of NATO's expansion eastward, right? The, the Russians are blaming NATO countries to have, like, included, you know, the, the Baltic states, Poland into yeah. NATO, and afraid that, you know, Ukraine will be part, so they would rather attack them right now, even though Ukraine is not part of NATO and, and has been blocked from adjoining NATO in the past. This, and that, by far, is the most prevalent one. I think that's the one that convinces like the most Canadians in that respect. The second yeah. argument is one that makes an argument about like aggression. Uh, what they say is that, you know, the West is using Ukraine as a proxy to wage war against Russia. So it's NATO's fault if Russia invaded Ukraine because we're using Ukraine as a proxy against Russia. And and this is also important. The, the, the third one, which almost has not a lot of traction in Canada, mm-hmm. But it's still pushed by the Kremlin is the notion that, you know, there's Nazis in, in Ukraine and Russia is there in a denazifying operation. Almost no one in Canada really believes this. And you actually see that people don't share a lot of this narrative. And the last ones are interesting. The last one are kind of focusing on, on mistrust and institution, kind of blaming the Western world and, and kind of an anti-elite argument, right? Essentially, that global elites, corporations, are, are using Ukraine and are using and abusing Western governments to wage a capitalist war against Russia to benefit from the war. So they talk about the globalists, the World Economic Forum, and how elites are actually, you know, positioning or creating a war just to benefit from it. Um, and the last one is really criticizing the Trudeau government in supporting Ukraine and saying that essentially, like, the Trudeau government is part of this international elite that are trying to benefit from from the war. And that's what we consistently see since since the beginning. Uh, There's sometimes, you know, variations of how they're doing it, but essentially what the, what, you know, the Russians are doing is creating these narrative and then they push it and they try to promote it as much as possible, criticizing the West, but also trying to justify their illegal invasion of Ukraine. Those last two, of course, are ones that we've seen used for other topics as well. Obviously, Absolutely. the, the anti-elitism oh, yeah. and 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 the attacks against uh, against the government as well. Yeah. Uh, I, I I only have a few minutes left. I had two more things to ask you, so I'll try and get to them quickly. Um, right. What should people be looking? How effective has it been, or do you know? And and what really should social media users be leery of? Maybe the last one is the best one uh, for right. our audience. So- uh, on the broader, like, so it is effective with the margins of the population. I, isn't, I think this is the concerning part. What we see, for example, is people on the right, and, and especially people who vote, for example, for the People's Party or follow, you know, alt-right or far-right uh, media in Canada, are most susceptible to be influenced by this information, misinformation. So even though most of us are not influenced by that, we have a portion of the population that gets more and more radicalized, more and more disinform and 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 they participate in the public discourse and that sows dissension and polarization and i think that's the really troubling part but the other part i think is that collectively we have to have a better conversation in canada about foreign influence the impact of social media in our in our lives and and really think strongly about what kinds of norms and legal you know framework we want you know, social media platforms to abide with. And and right now we have kind of been, you know, kind of easygoing and pushing and making the argument about free speech without really considering the damaging impact of, of polarization and social media discourse on our, you know, democratic resiliency. And we're at a point here where we have to have this conversation, especially after COVID, after the Freedom Convoy, I think now we have a lot of data points that shows us that there's something wrong in how we negotiate these discourses and somehow either the government but also society, media needs to come together to kind of address this issue. We don't do it. The federal government doesn't really do it well right now, and we're still kind of you know, careful in our approach, but somehow we'll have to deal with this issue uh, sooner rather than later. Jacques-Christophe Boucher, fascinating uh, study that you've done. Thank you so much for sharing the information with, uh, with myself and our listeners tonight. I appreciate it. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much. 
Well, the last half hour, we spoke about how disinformation is spread on social media, but the war in Ukraine, specifically efforts to sell the Kremlin's justification for that illegal invasion, a war that's killed uh, thousands of civilians, displaced millions more. Well, unlike the keyboard warriors sitting comfortably at home in some basement bashing out propaganda, others actually spend time on the ground in Ukraine now, reporting the war and all its brutality and its impact firsthand. And one of those reporters is Global News senior correspondent Jeff Semple, who's just back from reporting in Ukraine, including in the east, where the war continues to rage. I'm here in the city of Sloviansk in the Donetsk Oblast in eastern Ukraine. And this area was just hit, as you can see, several apartment buildings, a school damaged over here after Russian rocket fire overnight. And as you can see, the cleanup now well underway. From what we've been told, several people were killed here, even more were injured. This appears to be just a residential neighborhood in Sloviansk, which is in the Donbass, Ukraine's industrial heartland in the east and Vladimir Putin's stated target. Russian-backed separatists have controlled about a third of the Donbass for the past eight years, and Putin now wants to finish what he started. Sloviansk is, appears to be one of the next stops on Russia's warpath. Russian forces are moving close, closer and closer to here. They are slowly gaining ground. And we spoke to the mayor of the nearby community of Kramatorsk, who says that he believes the next two weeks will be critical in this war. Sloviansk uh, was a town that I was also in back in 2014, uh, just north of Donetsk. Uh, Jeff Semple there reporting on the ground. Well, he landed back in Canada today, and uh, I'm pleased to say Jeff joins me from Toronto. Thanks so much for your time. Welcome home. Yeah, thanks, man. Yeah, it's nice to be home. Just back, just off the plane, and uh, I have some laundry to do, but it's nice to be home. <laughs> the glamorous life of the war correspondent. Um <laughs> I mean, you're you're back. You've been a few times now. Uh, what's the mood like? What was it like to be there again? What what differences are you seeing uh, over your previous trips? Yeah, I mean, there were many differences. The last time I was there was like I guess sort of two months earlier, so sort of March, April, and then you know this this one sort of May, June, early June, obviously. Um, and you know, it really feels now the biggest difference. I think when we were there the first time is the whole country felt like it was you know, really under threat, like everywhere from Lviv, Odessa, Kiev, Kharkiv, and of course the Donbass, like everybody was bracing for impact if they weren't being hit already. Uh, and this time it's sort of become, you know, at the risk of oversimplifying it, a, a tale of two countries. It's is the story of Ukraine. Like there's the, the, the West is very peaceful, you know, Lviv, even Kiev now, you know, we spent some time there um in the capital it was hit just uh, just the other day but before that it hadn't been hit with a missile strike in over a month and you know when we were there in kiev the first time back in early april it was a, a ghost town uh, we were trying to drive around trying to find a place to eat uh, and then we had a restaurant to ourselves this time we could barely get a table in that restaurant uh, like the place was packed people are sipping lattes during the day and craft beer at night like it just feels like it's back to being another major european city at peacetime and then of course you drive east to Kharkiv and the Donbass in particular which of course is the stated target of this Russian invasion now and uh, it's a completely different experience I mean it was it was horrific a lot of these communities just look post-apocalyptic um, and so it, yeah well, that was really heart-wrenching and it was just you know when we were there it was just day after day of just horrific stories I mean one in particular comes to mind near Kharkiv, where we went into this village and this woman had been killed by a Russian airstrike in her home in Vilhivka. A piece of shrapnel hit her backyard and flew through the window and killed her. And then her son wanted to bury her. So he gets this burial party together of sort of friends and colleagues. And as they're burying her in this local cemetery, another Russian rocket hits the cemetery and kills two members of the burial party. Uh, two young men in their 20s. So it was just like horror after horror, uh, you know, in a lot of these Eastern communities. Uh, and then you drive, you know, 10 hours to the West and, and you're in places that feel like the war couldn't be further away. Yeah, it was, I mean, it was very similar. I mean, for listeners who, who don't 
remember this, the, there has been a war going on technically in, in the Donbass for eight years now. For a long time, Ukraine has felt a bit like two countries. I imagine it's different now, much more serious in the Donbass. Uh, you spent some time in Kharkiv really documenting some of the destruction there. Um, it, it's it's heart-wrenching to, to see it from afar because you know that these are civilians being targeted in the places where they live. These are not military uh, targets by any stretch of the imagination. And you saw, you saw the aftermath of that. I mean, the destruction, just the level of destruction all the way down as you head towards Slovyansk and, and, and uh, Kramatorsk and so on must be just just gutting. Yeah, and you're right. I mean, you know, despite the, the propaganda that we hear, of course, from the Russian side, um, and, you know, I hear it from people here in Canada often. You know, I came home the first time and people asked me, uh, like, seriously, a few people asked me here in Canada, what's really going on in Ukraine? Like, we heard when you just got home, what's really going on over there? Like, they don't know what to believe. Uh, And there was just like, if there's any doubt in your mind, like just to be unequivocal about the civilian targets are being bombed every single day in Ukraine. Yeah, every single day, apartment buildings, uh, schools, Uh, you know, often the Ukrainian military has used, you know, abandoned schools as as a place to take shelter. And then the Russians will hit that. But, (laughs) you know, we're talking apartment buildings that are packed full of civilians that are getting hit every single day. Uh, And we're finding evidence of, you know, weapons that are banned by most countries like cluster munitions, which are by their very nature, just wildly indiscriminate. A bomb blows up in in midair and then it releases all of these other little bombs that explode all over the place. So we found evidence of cluster munitions in in a number of areas in Kharkiv. So it is, yeah, it is just, it is absolutely horrific and, and it is targeting civilians. And, you know, what's interesting, Ben, is, you know, Kharkiv is just 40 kilometers from the Russian border. Uh, the, the vast majority of that pre-war population there spoke Russian, you know, close ties to Russia. A lot of their relatives live in Russia. It's sort of like Canada, the United States, like there was just, yeah. you know, a close affinity. And and now they, they're they just sickened and, and don't know what to think. And, you know, they are some of them now civilians taking up arms for the first time, learning to use a, an, an AK-47 or a Kalashnikov to, to try and kill Russians that are invading their home. It's yeah. It's hard to it's hard to even just wrap your head around. What was it like for you just trying to get around? I, I know a lot of the times uh, when it comes to covering these things, you know, and it doesn't, you don't see it as the viewer at home, but, but it is 90% logistics and 10% reporting. Uh, what's it been like just security wise, getting around, moving around? Uh, what was it like this time in the East? Yeah, no, and that's exactly what I say to young journalists when they, they, they want to do this sort of thing. And it's like important to remind people that it, it is 90% logistics is exactly right. Uh, my colleague, Stuart Bell, likens it to reporting, trying to do journalism with a fire hose blasting in your face the whole time, just because there are so many challenges constantly. And in this case, the first time, getting around was a real challenge back in March and April. There were so many checkpoints and journalists were... Um, you know, had, had at first been welcomed, but then there was sort of this almost this crackdown on Western journalists because by the Ukrainian forces, because they were worried that Western journalists were broadcasting images, um, you know, say, uh, you know, there would be a missile strike in Lviv and then all of the correspondent, all the cameras would, would point in that direction. And Ukrainian forces were worried that that was giving Russians intel. Right. So um, that was the challenge the first time. This time, one of the biggest logistical challenges this has been well reported is the gas situation. So there is a major gas shortage in Ukraine right now. And it's a big country, the second biggest country in Europe. And it is very hard just to fill up the gas tank. And what we found was when we would have finally find a gas station that had fuel, uh, we were like, oh, thank God, we line up for a while, pay an exorbitant price for it, and then go. And then the car would stall like three minutes later, and we realized we got bad gas that had been mixed, I guess, with water or alcohol, potentially. Um, so we were pulling over about every three or four minutes um, to stop the car, restart the car, that would do it. Then we drive three minutes, then the car stalls. And so it was just driving on bad gas across the second biggest country in Europe was a major challenge. And security, as you noted, is obviously the biggest challenge. Um, we had an excellent security expert with us um, the whole time. And he was also a weapons expert and was very good at you know scouring the open source intelligence about where exactly the Russians were how far away the front line was, the types of weapons they had, and whether we could get into a community. If we went into this particular community, would we be in range of Russian artillery, for example, or rocket fire? Uh, and that's always a uh, consideration. And, you know, we were out of harm's way the vast majority of the time, but there were a couple moments that were hairy uh, north of Kharkiv where a mortar um, was, was shot, you know, I, what I consider to be too close to where we were. 
caught us a little bit by surprise and we got out of there. Uh, but when we were leaving, of course, we were leaving these villagers behind, old people, sick people, poor people who who can't leave. And as we were pulling out of that community because we were afraid we were going to get killed, I was just staring at this woman sitting on her bench outside her house, an elderly woman who was too sick to leave. And so, of course, you know, we leave. I've left. Uh, but so many of them can't. Yeah, that's always, that's, that's really is for those who've never seen it, that really is the, the most gut wrenching part of this is this notion that, of course, you can just drive away, your story's done. Uh, but the people who you've just talked to that day are still there and you wonder about them for, I still wonder about people I interviewed back in 2014 if they survive, if they're okay. No, there's really no way of finding out. I'm speaking with Global News Senior Correspondent Jeff Seppel, just back from Ukraine. We're talking about his trip there, his recent trip there, his reporting there. We'll talk a bit more about some of the stories he found, including a fascinating one about a 15-year-old drone pilot after this. I'm speaking with Jeff Semple. He's Global News' senior correspondent just back from Ukraine on a reporting trip there, mostly to the east of the country where this war really continues to rage. Uh, but you did uh, revisit uh, uh, you know, moments back earlier in this conflict when Kiev was under threat and uh, the incredible story of a 15-year-old drone pilot, uh, an amateur, who, who did some remarkable things to, that really helped save his town. How did, you, how did you find him and what was his story? Yeah, you know, it's it was that was one of the definitely one of the most memorable stories of if not of this trip of my career. I mean, meeting this young fifteen year old, he we so we I wanted to do a story about drones because you know I've been talking to so many people there about what a game changer drone drone technology has been in this conflict, and where you know drones for years have been a tool of war, but in Ukraine we've seen a proliferation of consumer level drones, so the type of things that you know our kids play with in Canada, uh, you know, that can be you know, bought for a few hundred dollars. Um, there are thousands of these that have been deployed by civilians in Ukraine to help provide some extra sets of eyes in the skies for the Ukrainian military. So when Russia invaded um, back in February, some uh, drone shop owners uh, were in touch with the Ukrainian military. The military didn't actually have any short range drones. So they put out a call basically on Facebook and asked civilian drone operators uh, if they would be willing to put their drones up in the sky to try and look out for Russian forces and then relay that information, the coordinates to the Russian military. And so there was, you know, quite a remarkable response. They were pretty overwhelmed. A thousand plus people uh, volunteered to use their drones to help spot Russian forces, including the youngest volunteer, this 15-year-old uh, who lived just outside of Kiev in a small town. Um, and so he was, in t- I guess, basically turned out that he was the only drone operator, only experienced drone user in his town. He bought his drone as a toy last summer, uh, really took to it, used, he said he practiced with it every day, loved flying it, loved taking pictures from up high. And so suddenly, um, in February, the Russians are approaching his town and he's the only one in town with a drone. And he, they hear that the Russians are very close, like within, you know, potentially two or three kilometers from the town. And so this kid agrees to go out and put up his drone. So he went out with his dad into a field near his house. They put the drone up over a major highway at night. Uh, And then suddenly he saw in the dark, a Russian vehicle turned its headlights on coming down the highway and he saw that there was an armored convoy of Russian vehicles heading towards his town. So he took some pictures. His dad then sent those pictures and the coordinates to the Russian, to the Ukrainian military and the military destroyed the Russian armored column and uh, basically saved the town. That's such a remarkable story. And it just feels like it, it encapsulates something about, about how Ukraine has fought back so perfectly that, that it's all hands on deck and just about anything you can offer, you offer and, and how it's made a difference. Yeah, that's it. And, it, and, you know, talking to the kid, it was, I mean, he's a teenager, 15, mm-hmm. but he, it was, it, it was, you know, to, to that point, like, you know, what civilians are, civilians are really, you know, there's no question in so many ways, civilian volunteers, as you say, are helping Ukraine win the war. Uh, but when they're that young, you know, I asked him, how did it feel when you did it? And he he said, you know, he felt really happy that he could help. Then he also said, sounded like quite conflicted. He said that, you know, but on the other hand, there were more people in those vehicles. And yes, they were occupiers, but they were still people. So he said he didn't really know how to explain how he felt about it. And you could just see in his eyes, like a 15-year-old kid is trying to come to terms with the horror of all of this. It, it was a lot to digest. 
uh, process just the sheer re- brutality of war itself, right? Um, yeah. What What is this? I mean, there's been a lot of talk here over the last little while about sort of, you know, people maybe uh, tiring of the, you know, there's sort of this narrative that it's time to give Putin an off ramp and, you know, maybe that the you know, public opinion in the West is shifting a bit. Are you sensing that over there as well? Are they watching to see how, what the mood is abroad and, and, and wondering how long people are going to continue to support them? Yeah, I think they're, they're, the worry about that is palpable for sure. Um, I think, you know, they were, people over there were, I think, even more willing to talk to us on this trip because they're worried that, you know, they're, they're appreciating that we're there and they're, they're worried that, that the attention might be fading, um, which, you know, feels inevitable, right? And, um, and especially as the focus is, you know, much more on the East, as you say, you know, this, that's a war that's been going on for eight years uh, that we, you know, most people weren't paying attention to. It's on a much larger scale now, uh, but it's still, you know, in, in large part, the same region of the country that has been at war, um, just more of it. But yeah, I think they're, they are concerned uh, for sure. And, you know, they've said that the message, almost regardless of who you talk to over there, they're, you know, they say, we, we just need more weapons from the West. Like we just, we don't need soldiers. There are a lot of Canadian cowboys and American cowboys who have gone over there to try and, you know, play war. Um, they don't want that. What they want is is weapons. They need, you know, artillery. Uh, right now, this is really an artillery war. It's a game of inches now. Uh, I guess slow grinding artillery war in the east. So that's what that's what the Ukrainians need and want. Um, but they are very concerned that yeah, the longer this drags on, the harder it's going to be to convince you know countries particularly the united states to continue providing this steady supply of weapons which up till this point have allowed ukraine to be as successful as they've been i know you haven't had a lot of time to process all that you've seen already but uh where do you think this is headed what's your sense now of of what happens next in ukraine at what point is is vladimir putin satisfied with this grotesque war that he's you know the so-called special military operation uh, like he, they're very Russians are, are quite close to capturing the province of Luhansk now, although, you know, Severodonetsk is putting up a big fight like they're it's by not it's certainly not a done deal. But if, if Russia were to capture the province of Luhansk, then turn its attention to Donetsk, um, then, you know, Russia has the Donbass and the Donbass is, you know, the at least in the most recent version of the Kremlin's tale. It, the Donbass is this, their stated objective. So if they were to get the Donbass, which is Eastern Ukraine, industrial heartland, would that be enough for Putin? Um, I guess is one question. And the other question, of course, is, you know, I don't see the Ukrainians and President Zelensky being happy with that. So they'll continue to fight. Well, Jeff Semple, thanks so much for your time tonight. Welcome home. Glad that you're back safe and sound. And congratulations on, you know, some really excellent reporting over there. It was very enlightening, I think, for all of us who continue to watch uh, what's happening in Ukraine. Yeah, thanks, Ben. Always a pleasure talking to you, and thanks for uh, putting a spotlight on it. Really appreciate it. This hour, we're talking about uh, high prices and just how much people are struggling with them uh, these days in this country. Inflation at a 30-year high. We've seen gas prices skyrocket here where I am in Victoria. They're at record highs once again. Um, Food prices, again, I was at the grocery store this afternoon. It's hard to imagine. Not much on sale. Things are high. Although we are heading into the summer, so there should be a bit of relief. Obviously, this has become a political issue. It always is. The Conservatives are calling on the Trudeau government to temporarily suspend the GST on gas and diesel. The NDP wants the Liberals to take stronger action against corporations and get them to redistribute their excess profits to Canadians in need. Uh, here's the Innovation Minister, Francois-Philippe Champagne, yesterday responding to that uh, those demands and criticism Ottawa isn't doing enough. I think one of the things we've achieved recently, which, which helps the cost of living, is childcare across Canada. Because uh, if you're a family um, in many parts of the country, that's a big part of your budget. Yeah, not yet. I mean, honestly, it's it's a fine it's a fine plan, childcare across Canada. But I don't really think it's having a big impact on a lot of families' bottom lines right now. Um, and that sometimes is the issue when when you hear these conversations happen in politics. Is that it can be, it doesn't have to be just one or the other. It can be both. But sometimes talking about these broader sort of societal progressive projects is fine. But what people are actually asking is, how are you going to help people survive now? Uh, what's going on now? What can you do to help people now? Uh, 
Um, needless to say, when it comes to people struggling with affordability in this country, food banks tend to be the canary in the coal mine, a hint at what's really going on across the country. A new survey from Food Banks Canada shows hunger and food insecurity are increasing across the country. Lower income Canadians, of course, are being hardest hit by inflation. That's not surprising. Specifically, a number of Canadians, a growing number, are struggling with the rising costs of food prices for basics like pasta, bread, meat, and so forth. Uh, that survey conducted by Main Street Research found almost a quarter of Canadians reported eating less than they should because there wasn't money enough money for food, a figure that nearly doubled for those earning less than $50,000 a year. Well, with more on that, joining me now is Don Huang Taylor. He's Executive Director of Food Banks BC. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Thanks for having me on, Ben. I guess the, the stats that came out from uh, from the national organization are pretty alarming, but uh, they do show uh, they do show show some some trends. Are these things that are we've seen progress gradually, or are these things that have really spiked of late? Well, I mean, the last twelve months have been well, twelve months. The last two years have been particularly hard on folks across the country. Um, I mean, here in BC, it's it, it, we've seen some very serious events uh, that have contributed towards heightened food insecurity. I mean, we were, we were in the grips of the pandemic when the, when the fires and the floods started. The, um, the disruption to the supply chain created issues for people province-wide. And now, as you've been saying here, the, the rising inflation and general living expenses is just making it harder for so many British Columbians who are already on a you know, tight budget and struggling to make ends meet. So... Yeah, we're seeing, a, a, as I think the Food Banks Canada report mentioned, the perfect storm uh, for, for these issues to create very serious levels of food insecurity. I'm sure this is uh, replicating itself across the country, but in BC, where you are, how is this manifesting itself day to day in terms of who's coming, what they're looking for, and just how uh, difficult a situation many families find themselves in? Well, so we're a member association and uh, our membership comprises of 105 food banks. I was recently speaking with uh, the leadership at the Greater Vancouver Food Bank, one of our, our largest members, and they're reporting um, three times as many new registrants or new clients registering for services over the last couple of months and record-breaking single-day client numbers. Uh, so th this is something that we're seeing reflected in communities all across the province. And we took a look at some of the client numbers across a range of food banks uh, between December uh, 2021 to March of this year. And the numbers, are, 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 they really are cause for serious concern. Uh, the number of individuals using food banks has increased by almost 30 percent. Uh, the number of new clients registering is over, over 80 percent. So province wide, we're seeing some very concerning numbers. And, and Dan, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I referred to food banks as sort of the canary in the coal mine earlier, that when, you know, that when families are really struggling, they then turn, it, it takes a while for a lot of families to turn to charity, so to speak, to food banks uh, mm -hmm. when they're struggling. Um, is, is that the case? Is that really a cause for alarm when you see those kinds of numbers? Because it suggests something far, perhaps far more dire than we're even seeing in those stats. Yeah, it's, just, it, it's, it's a very not notable spike because... Uh, you're right. People will do an awful lot before they turn to a food bank. Um, they will get into debt. They will borrow. Uh, we're seeing people skipping meals. It's um, it's it's something which uh, there is still heavy stigma attached to, um, and um, and people are reluctant to turn to a food bank. We we already knew coming out of the pandemic that the that with the financial con financial impact that the pandemic had, people were getting into more debt and over the course of the, the following years of recovery, we would start to see the numbers alleviate food banks. Uh, so then to see such a jump in numbers in March, when we, we really feel that's the month where people started to feel the pinch, um, even though the, the, the increase in prices had crept up prior to that, uh, it took a while for the impact to really sort of be felt within the food banks. And it's, 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 Definitely something that, uh, that, that that more and more families are going to have to be turning to, uh, particularly people who are on fixed incomes, seniors, people on social assistance or claiming disability supports. That they're, they're you know really going to continue to struggle, uh, and we've seen increases in all of these client groups over the past two years. So we can only expect these numbers to climb. 
Yeah, because we were speaking with the chief economist at the Conference Board of Canada in the last half hour. I mean, this was really meant to be the time that we were supposed to recover from from the worst of the past two years. I mean, this should be the time that food banks across the country, including in BC, are sort of taking a breather and 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 you know basically seeing those numbers come back down. Instead, we're seeing the opposite, uh, and and you know. Basically, the economy is not doing that badly right now. So uh, that must that must again be 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 cause be a cause for concern. Are you able to keep up with demand? I mean, are your clients are your or is your are the organizations that you represent able to keep up with all this demand? Well, food banks um, will uh, will are very resilient. Um, they are able to use buying power um, and connections within their communities and, uh, and you know, at a food banks at a provincial level and at a national level, um, we have very strong ties to a number of, um, of corporate donors who can support us through donations of food. We've also been the recipient of, um, of a lot of generosity in terms of financial support. Um, and that's necessary because budgets are stretched further. Uh, a lot of food banks have to buy, buy food. Um, they're, they're heavily reliant on the donations, but that doesn't cover all of the, the foods foods that need to be distributed. A lot of the, the healthy foods, uh, the, the healthy proteins, the fresh produce, the dairy, the, the eggs, baby formula, a lot of these products need to be purchased. So food banks, as, food banks themselves have very stretched budgets as well. Um, and so navigating this time is going is to be, be challenging. Yeah, that's, that's, that's the long and short of it. Yeah, when you spoke earlier about surveying, sort of who was who you were seeing, the sort of the, the different sorts of people. Where where would the surprises be? I mean, who are you seeing that you haven't really seen as much of in the past? Well, I, I think the the biggest thing is the the, the new client numbers. Um, that that you know what I what I cited out of Vancouver and and then our our study to see an eighty percent jump in that um, just speaks to the number of people who are really on the edge of poverty. Uh, and this is this is kind of tipped them over. Uh, we we see consistent numbers in terms of the profile of of certain groups, such as uh, it's about approximately a third of all clients who access food banks in BC is actually a child. Um, and then we we do see people from racialized communities who are disproportionately affected by a lot of these situations that have created the increased demand, um, and as well as the systemic barriers that you know keeps. Uh, certain groups in poverty as well. They're certainly overrepresented at food banks. Um, but, uh, but really, I'd say it's the, the number of, of new clients, people who never expected to be turning to food banks. I'm speaking with Don Huang Taylor. He's the executive director of Food Banks BC. We're talking about uh, some recent data put out by Food Banks Canada, just about usage that showed uh, 23, almost 25 percent of uh, respondents to this particular survey saying that uh, they're doing without, uh, just so that there's enough to eat in the family. For instance, that the people are going without food, um, and that uh, new clients, at least in BC, up astronomically uh, of late, uh, numbers that are certainly cause for concern. When we come back, just a bit more about long-term, what can be done both to support food banks, uh, to make sure that people have uh, them to turn to, but also just about uh, supporting uh, people who find themselves in difficulty now, how we can do a better job of supporting them more broadly going forward. Uh, That's coming up. This half hour, we're talking about food banks really seeing the impact of rising food prices uh, across the country, specifically as well uh, in BC. We're speaking with Dan Huang Taylor. He's the executive director of Food Banks BC, the provincial association of food banks. Uh, its membership comprises of 105 hunger relief agencies throughout the province. Um, Food bank visits, according to stats on their website, have increased by 5% uh, since 2019. A lot of those uh, increases we're seeing are seniors, obviously children, a lot of children uh, involved. Um, one of the the quotes that really caught my eye from the Food Banks Canada news release earlier this week with that data was that uh, uh, the CEO there, Kristen Beardsley, saying that th- this summer will be the toughest Canada's food banks have ever experienced in our 41-year history. Uh, that, that's, that's, a, that's a big statement. Are we seeing the same thing in BC? Um, we are anticipating a very tough summer. If, if the trends continue the way that they are, and there's no reason to uh, anticipate that they won't, with the number of new people registering, the number of returning clients, and just the general increase in visits, um, we can we can uh, we, we share that concern that this will be an extremely tough summer. 
what can people do to help? What can individuals do to help out if they, if they, uh, because certainly seeing the need, uh, this seems like a good place to, to devote one's, um, time and energy or money if, if you, if you can. Exactly. If you can, we, we acknowledge that, um, everyone's really feeling the pinch, uh, during this, 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 uh, this difficult time. And, uh, but supporting a local food bank is, um, is, is something that you can do. I mean, there's uh, obviously financial donations, um, food um, is is always welcome, uh, but also volunteering. Some support would would to help uh, with this increase in demand is going to be critical for food banks uh, while while they're you know handling more clients, needing to pack more hampers. Um, so uh, you can go to our website, which is foodbanksbc.com, and uh, we have a um, we have a tab there where you can see where your local food bank is with all the contact information. Um, and you can also donate to Food Banks BC. So that would support our work in just getting more resources, food funds, and, and, and other supports to our food banks across the province. I would imagine food banks are suffering from the same issues that many businesses are suffering from right now, which is a lack of staff. It's difficult to find people to work right now. There's so much out there and people have lots of options. I imagine that's probably the same here and elsewhere across the country. Well, a large number of our food banks, um, the last count was was a, over a third of our food bank members are entirely volunteer run, but the pandemic has created a lot of challenges on that front as well. Because many people who support food banks, who are dedicate a lot of their time to food banks, um, are older and uh, would fall into more vulnerable categories and in, in terms of uh, you know, greater risk of, um, of of health complications. And um, and over this last two years, we, we have seen more people step away from supporting food banks uh, just because of the, uh, the, the nature of living in this pandemic. Uh, more volunteers to support food banks is something that uh, we are always hearing from our members. And uh, I guess, again, as you say, you look ahead to a, to a busy summer. I mean, what kind of, when, when people talk about donating stuff to food banks, what is it that you need these days? What is it that someone, if, if someone wants to donate, what is it that you're really looking for? Because it feels like, you know, it's not just the incidentals. It feels like people are really now needing the basics much more than they might have in the past. Canned goods, uh, dried goods, shelf-stable goods are always welcome. Um, the... The, the food banks obviously want to be able to provide as many um, nutritious options to clients who access services, uh, but those those household covered staples are, are, are very easy for food banks to be able to accept to store um, and then and then get distributed to their clients. Um, it's uh, but but really, if you're in a position to provide any support at all, uh, that will be that will be very welcome. And I imagine you would speak uh, here on behalf of food banks right across the country, because I imagine it's pretty much the same situation uh, coast to coast, I would, I would think. Yeah, but we're seeing um, universal increases in demand to, across the country. Uh, last question for you, and you, may, perhaps you can you, you can delve into this or not, but uh, really, I mean, food banks are meant to be the last resort. We're not supposed to, you know, as a society, we're not supposed to rely on food banks. Uh, you know, we're one of the richest societies uh, on the planet. Uh, what needs to be done, do you think, in, in the short term to try to at least uh, alleviate some of the need? Is it, is it I mean, because I gather it's all interconnected. Housing prices are high, which high food prices, it all connects. So, um, you know, there, there must be solutions at least short-term solutions that might help ease the ease the pain uh, for food banks and those using them the short-term solutions i, I think are, are a little more maybe a little trickier um when we think about food uh, insecurity and the reduction of food insecurity we're, we're really talking about the reduction of income insecurity um and i i think we need to work towards uh increasing the income floor um for people across the country so that uh, those who are on social assistance uh, and uh, who are um, on uh, lower wages or uh, on fixed incomes uh, are, are able to uh, lift to a level where they are not reliant on food bank services. As you said, we were always a temporary solution and have become a, a fixture of our social support network. And that services are growing su suggests that it was, you know, this temporary solution isn't going away anytime soon. Uh, the, the other thing I would say is is waste reduction. In this country, we 
see billions of dollars of food wasted every single year so that there are kids who are going to school hungry or people skipping meals is just completely unacceptable. I imagine people should never feel embarrassed, though, about turning to your services. I imagine people still do. People do. And we are working hard to reduce the stigma to create as dignified an experience as possible for anyone who needs to turn to food banks. Um, there are more food bank models that closely resemble a grocery store. So someone can come in and um, and take what they need and, uh, and, and have an experience that, that is more dignified. This, this is something that many food banks are working towards um, and some are early on in, early on in this journey, but, um, but we, we just want people to know that the services are here for support and they really should not feel um, that there's, um, there's, there's, there's any judgment whatsoever when you need to turn to a food bank. These are difficult times for many people. Dan Huang-Taylor, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate the information. Yeah, thanks very much for having me on.